Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 11, and continue on through this great gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark chapter 11. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 25, 26, 15 through 26, but, and so let's look at that, let's pray. Father, this morning, as we meet before you again, Lord, it's a privilege to be able to have the word of God in our hands. It's a privilege to be able to have our ears hear it, our minds think on it, and Lord, to be able to do it in still in a land that is fairly safe. So Lord, I thank you for those who are here today. I pray that you would open their eyes to see. I pray that you would challenge their hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would each give us a desire to examine ourselves, to see where we, are, where, we're, where we are at with you, Lord, so we can honestly pray to you and we can honestly confess our sin. So, Lord, you, will, you could be faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. So now, Lord, open this text to us this morning and help us to understand it in Christ's name. Amen. So in this passage of scripture, let me just go back from last time. I, we were in the Gospel of Mark. Remember, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. He comes in as the king of Israel. Uh, the crowd that is gathering, not only coming out of Jerusalem, but uh, coming with him into Jerusalem, thinks that Jesus is going to be a conqueror and topple over the Roman government. Uh, and so the crowd really had a mistaken understanding of Jesus the Messiah, his mission. And even when the crowd uh, cried out, Hosanna, and a Hosanna really meant save now, they actually had a misplaced understanding and a misplaced joy because they really wanted God uh, to break in and save his people now that the Messiah had come. So the, cro the crowd actually sought the protection of a king who would come to conquer Israel's enemies. So they did not see. This is what the crowd did not see. And this is what where Satan blinds people, is that they did not see that the cross must take place first before there can be salvation, before there can be uh, joy in the Lord. See, Jesus did not come the first time to purge Israel of foreign domination, but actually he came to purge his people from their sin. So the crowd did not see that the sorrow that surrounded the cross, they did not see that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross would purchase the release from bondage of those many sinners who would believe in him from then till now and even after us 
And so Jesus' triumph would come from his death on the cross and his resurrection. So in verse number 11 of Mark chapter 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, all right, so this is what's going on here. Entry into the city took place on, I said last time, Sunday afternoon. Uh, When Jesus got into the city, he went to the temple to look around, and he notes abuses that have crept in to the temple. And remember, the temple is the place where God met uh, his people on earth, where they were to bring their sacrifices and they were to worship him and pray to him. They were to do that at the temple. Now, that later on that Sunday afternoon, Jesus and his disciples headed back to Bethany to get some rest. And it says in verse number 11, and he left for Bethany with the 12 since it was already late. Uh, and then, remember, I don't want you to forget this. Keep in mind that one, the last one-third of Mark's gospel is the last seven days of Jesus' passion. All right, so... That's what's taking place here from chapter 11 to chapter 16. It's, it's really talking about seven days. And right, this setting is in the springtime. So it's uh, March, April in, in that time frame. And so now it's Monday and Jesus and his disciples are making their way back to Jerusalem. And we know that early in the morning uh, they took off. Jesus left Bethany without having anything to eat. And so it says in verse number 12, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And so here, Mark is not missing any opportunities to give, uh, really to give the human picture of Jesus. He definitely was hungry, like anybody else would be hungry. And his hunger, though, laid the groundwork for the message last week and the story that was going to be told. And from that story of the fig tree and what we're going to look at today is that there are two warnings that we all need to seriously consider in order to evaluate our present condition, all right? And so so the review, a review of last time is important. The Lord curses the fig tree in verse number 13. Uh, If you notice, seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see it if perhaps uh, he would find anything on it. And, of course, remember, the fig tree appeared to have signs of fruit on it. And so Jesus saw the fig tree in full leaf, which meant possible fruit. And remember, in the, in the, in the springtime at, at this part of the world, uh, this particular fruit tree uh, also produced what they would call in Hebrew pagum, which is really unripe figs but they're actually edible. You can eat them. If there's full leaves on the tree, then you could you can say, okay, there's probably something on there I can eat. And so the fig tree, uh, as he, Jesus got closer to it and examined it, he only found leaves and no fruit at all. In verse 13, when he came to it, it that's what it says, he, he, he only found, uh, he found nothing on it all, at all but leaves. And so Jesus uh, didn't even find a little immature fruit on it, uh, he only found, uh, he found no fruit at all, just the leafy fig tree, which gave a promise of fruit in order to satisfy hunger. But when he gets there, it turns out to be just deceptive, unfruitful, 
unable to gra uh, gratify appetite. So what does Jesus do? He curses, in verse number 14, he curses the fig tree. And um, now we learned from last time that uh, you really can't doubt for a moment that there is a prophetic and a spiritual lesson to be gleaned from the whole transaction going on here with Jesus. And so these verses should bring to our attention the first warning, which I went over last week, and that's the warning of the great danger of unfruitfulness uh, in one's Christian life, in someone's who claims to believe, be a believer but has no fruit. They just have a lot of leaves, uh, but they have no fruit. Now, of course, prophetically, this lesson is about Israel, Israel, Israel being under God's condemnation, that all of their history was a preparation for the coming of the chosen one. And so Israel's teachers should have borne much fruit in preparing the nation to receive the Messiah. But, of course, their whole promise uh, ended up being tra tragically unfulfilled because Israel was not bearing any fruit uh, for the laying the foundation for the Messiah. So you see, Israel, from a distance, had the promise of fruit, which should have borne the most evidence when Messiah came into the world, providing spiritual nutrition not only for the nation of Israel, but for the world, all the Gentile, Gentile nations that surrounded them or that had contact with them. But at close examination, there is only a lot of leaves. There's nothing to satisfy spiritual hunger. There's nothing nutritious and valuable to lead anyone to any kind of meaningful relationship with God. The curse is on those who claim to be something else, who give the appearance of some level of maturity but have no fruit at all. Those who are barren of all fruits of the Spirit, having a profession of faith, but just full of leafy branches, yet without any kind of evidence that there is real life there. So there is a warning against an empty profession of Christianity accompanied by sound doctrine and holy living. That's called in Scripture hypocrisy, that you're just living out something, but your heart's not engaged. And I said last time that there must be spiritual fruit in your hearts. And, of course, in the practice of our daily lives, if we are going to be convicted uh, and accused of being a real Christian, the way you get accused of that is by someone saying your fruit. And so I asked the question last time, what kind of fruit should I look for? Well, we saw that once a person is born again, into God's kingdom, then once they're born again and the Spirit of God lives in them, then they're going to bear fruit that the Spirit of God is, is actually producing in their life. The first thing we saw from John 15, that there's going to be the fruit of being abiding in Christ, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And then also 
there's a manifestation of spiritual fruit. Of course, we know that from Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So part of that is looking for the fruit of our words. Our words are important, how we speak, the fruit of our actions, the fruit of our righteousness, the fruit of the fear of the Lord, the fruit of the love of Scripture and continuing to abide in the Scripture and in the Word of God. And then also the fruit of sanctified imagination, that our minds, our very minds are sanctified by the Spirit of God, that we would actually think on the right things, not the things the flesh wants us to think on or the world wants us to think on or Satan wants us to think on, but actually what God wants us to think on. All right, now, is that a battle? You better believe it's a battle. We are fighting for that every day. In fact, there's a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians that says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what we're doing. That's the fight that we have in our own imagination, that we are fighting the fight so we continue to think on the things that we ought to think on and not on other things that would just lead us and drive us into sin. Also, we have to look for the fruit of increased faith, the fruit of prayer, the fruit of forgiveness, the fruit of service and good works, bearing, the Bible says, fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, and the fruit of souls, having a desire to want to take the gospel to those who don't know it to be saved. So, see, that is the, 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 really something we can measure in our life. We can take that, the word of God, and measure ourselves to see where are we at. How conformed are we to the will of God, to the character of Christ, all right? To our Christian confession, to our profession, how do we measure up is the, really the thing that we ought to be looking at in our life. And so that's where I left you last week. And so today, sandwiched in between cursing the fig tree and the withering fig tree, there is found the messianic king Jesus clearing the temple in which we pick up the second warning to seriously consider in order to evaluate our present spiritual condition. So if you have your Bibles, let's continue on in Mark chapter 11, verse number 15, and we see here the Lord, actually I call it, uh, you'll, you'll, you see maybe in the title, the Lord cleansing the temple. I think it's more the Lord clearing the temple. Uh, he's clearing something out. He's clearing out all the obstacles that the nation has have placed there, uh, and he's getting them out of there. Yes, I guess it could be a house cleaning, um, 
But what are the Lord's actions in verse 15 and 16? Before I read that, I want to let you know that this is the second temple cleansing. The Lord, when he started his ministry, cleansed the temple once. This is at the end of his ministry. Remember, the last seven days before he goes to the cross and he's resurrected. So now this is the second temple cleansing. In the first cleansing, Jesus was challenged right away. In this cleansing, no one dared to confront him and challenge what he was doing. See, the Lord's actions cannot go unnoticed when he entered the temple. And the reason why is that Jesus' conduct is quite striking. Jesus comes into the temple as a messianic king of justice. Now, notice what it says in Mark chapter 11, verse 15 and 16. It says, then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. See, in this act, Jesus comes and wields divine authority as the Son of Man and acts, and really an act that really vindicates his holiness and his justice. And he really has not done this in his ministry up until this particular point. See, the scene took place in what is called in the temple area the stoa, the royal stoa. That is where the the money changers were located. It was an open area. It was the largest area in the temple area, and it was called the court of the Gentiles. Now, that's really important. All right? That's really important about this particular text, that these people decided to set up shop in right on the edge of the court of the Gentiles. Now, there was necessary two essential things for all worshipers coming to Jerusalem and lived, that lived in Jerusalem. Now, remember, this is the Passover. So the first thing they needed was to secure an animal according to the Old Testament regulation of sacrifice. Everybody needed to do this. And even the Gentiles who were connected to the nation of Israel needed to do this. All right? They also needed to bring a sacrifice. Secondly, many needed, not all, but many needed to get their money exchanged so that they can pay their tax when they came to Jerusalem. Now, all Israelites from 20 years old had to pay a tax, usually paid before Passover happened. So they would come to Jerusalem for that purpose too. In fact, that's found in Exodus chapter 30. Uh, One passage says there in verse 14, everyone who is numbered from 20 years old and over shall give the contribution to the Lord. The rich shall not pay more than the poor shall Uh, shall nor pay less than half a shekel when they give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. You shall make atonement, the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting. 
So there in Scripture, everybody knew that if you were 20 years old and older, you had to do this. This was a requirement. So it was either paid in person, or if you lived too far away from Jerusalem, you had a relative uh, attending the Passover, and that you would give it to them, and they would hand it in for you. So see, these money changers, everybody had to have Jewish coins. So if you had foreign coinage, you had to come and get Jewish coinage, the shekel, and... uh, a fee was charged by these money changers as high as, they say, 10 to 12% for making the exchange. Now, for your information, the temple authorities controlled this business venture, which became a lucrative monopoly. Those who brought animals to the temple area uh, and bought it in the temple area, they were guaranteed that their animal would be an acceptable sacrifice. If you bought an animal outside of Jerusalem, into Jerusalem, there's a good possibility your animal would be rejected, and you would in turn have to buy an animal there. All right, so they had the people over a barrel. And so, his, actually, historian Josephus said in A.D. 66, now, of course, this is years later, uh, not too many years later, but in A.D. 66, the, the year the temple really was completed, it, the temple wasn't even completed at this point, he, he recorded this, that 255,600 lambs were sacrificed at Passover. That's not including the doves and the other animals. So it was an incredible time, and he estimated that there were about 2,700,000 celebrants uh, that would come to Jerusalem for the Passover. So it was truly, truly an incredible event, and there was plenty of opportunity to make money. So then the court of the Gentiles was turned into a common market, a stockyard for animals. Bartering had really been the rule of the day, and greed had ruled also. Noise and commotion, the the stench that that filled the area from the animals, uh, the only place the Gentiles could worship God was now taken over by all this. Of course, also showing how Israel viewed the Gentiles. They didn't view them as important, as a people that should be connected to them at all. And so that's all in the thing going on here in the text. And so being spiritually fruitless does not mean, though, that there is no movement or there's no appearance of life on the surface. And that really is the truth spiritually. Just because somebody is bearing no fruit don't mean they're not active in the Christian things or in religious things. They could be very active in religious things, and yet there is no fruit to show that they're really, truly a believer. So what happens next? Well, the Lord has to give a rebuke and, uh, to the people that are doing this in verse 17. Notice what it says. And he says, he began to teach and to say, is it not written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, Jesus enforced, by his authority, a clearing of his father's house until everything was quiet and orderly as it should be 
in the house of God. For what purpose? So people could be taught the word of God. When you have all this commotion going on, all this money-making going on, all this business going on, all this noise going on, no one could be taught anything. So the Lord brought everything to a place where he halted all their uh, ventures that were going on there, and he stopped it all because there was not only barrenness on the fig tree, this very place the other nations were allowed to meet with God, became polluted. So this brings me to the second warning. And the second warning is this. There is great danger in religious formality. There is great, great danger in religious formality. That what I mean by that is doing all the right things without your heart and mind engaged without realizing why you're doing them. You can go through the motions of religious things and give the appearance that you are definitely a Christian or you are a child of God, and yet there is this great, great danger of religious formality. See, the leaves of religious formality can be often found in abundance in one's life, there may be a lot of activity and appearance of organization, spirituality, devotion even to God. And yet after close, and I mean close examination, it is found to be just the trappings of formal religion and spiritual barrenness. Just going through the motions with no heart. This is what the Lord had the problem with in Scripture the most. This right here. He hated this. And that's why when you read John the Baptist, Malachi, the last prophet, ends with the hypocrisy of Israel. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, what does he bring up? The, hypocr the hypocrisy of Israel, right? They worship me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. See, God hates, hates that. And that's why the, uh, John the Baptist said in his day, when he prepared the groundwork for the coming of the Messiah, he said to the scribes and to the Pharisees, he said, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he said this, and don't you dare say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. We're children of Abraham. Therefore, nothing can touch us. We're already in the kingdom of God. We're already in the family of God. And John the Baptist says, no, you're not, because already the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he's speaking to the leadership of Israel. And he says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're all, that, all you do is you talk a lot, you do a lot, but your heart is not engaged. See, that's a religious formalist. And re remember this, a religious formalist, they're deeply concerned about external things. They're deeply concerned about doing one, two, and three, and usually in that order. See, they're deeply concerned about the religious system. They usually do not neglect their religious duty, but they have no heart. They do not come before the Lord to express feelings of repentance 
and a deep sense of sin and of love for God. They forget the meaning of the act of worship and the spirit in which it's to be done. Jesus is looking for people who are going to be worshiping in spirit and in truth, right? That's the kind of people he wants. That's the kind of people the Father wants. To worship in spirit and truth are of the utmost important to the Lord. I would say that it's right on the top of the list. Matter of fact, the reason why you and I were saved, if you are saved, is to worship God. We could not worship God until we became a believer. And so once we become a believer and God's spirit is in you, there must be fruit. It may be immature, but there, it's fruit. there's fruit there. So, see, in other words, repeated religious routine could be a very deadly thing if it's not examined. And I believe the Scripture is asking us to examine ourselves. You see, their heart got cold and numb, though they were unaware of their condition. Outwardly, things seemed to be in order, but inwardly, things were not right. And so Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew says again to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you, you hypocrites! So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, the only place the Gentiles could worship God was turned into a bazaar which defeated the very purpose of the temple for the Gentiles. Now, if you look again at verse number 17, I don't want you to miss this. Look what it says there. And he began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all nations? Did you see that? See, the Lord was never just for Israel. He was always for all the nations. Now, Israel was his chosen people, but for what reason? To take his message to the nations. That was the job that he gave them. But what did they do? It says there in verse number 17, but you have made it a robber's den. Now, consider this for a minute. Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56, and we're also going to look at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 through 15. Now, why am I turning to this passage of Scripture? Because in this passage of Scripture, we get, remember, Paul didn't have, uh, and the, uh, the apostles did not have the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. They were preaching from the Old Testament. So this very thought in verse 17 has to be in the Old Testament, right? Well, look what it says in, in Isaiah 56, in verse 6 and 7. Notice the language there. In verse number 6 of Isaiah 56, also the foreigner who joins themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Now, in verse number 6, you notice he's talking to foreigners, not Israel, not his people, Right? He's talking to those who have connected themselves to the nation of Israel because they discovered who God really was. Verse 7 says this, Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. 
their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer. And then notice again, for all the peoples. So you see here that they are cluttering up the place that the, all the rest of the nations could come and worship God with commerce and with making money and with all kinds of commotion. And the Lord is addressing this directly and he hates what they are doing. That's why such acts of turning over money tables and uh, just clearing people out of that area, why he's trying to clear the place that worship is supposed to be taking place at. So the temple being cleansed or cleared by Jesus is a rebuke to Israel that their largest court area, the court of the Gentiles, was being desecrated by lucrative business, making the court of the Gentiles instead a den of robbers. Now that is a very, very interesting phrase. If the temple authorities had approved these ventures, which they did, then the temple court became a den. Now, what is a den? A den is a home. It's a safe place, for, usually for animals, right? They have a den. They go, if they are afraid, they run to the den, right? And what do they get in the den? They get security. They get a place of safety. They get a place of protection. And Jesus is saying to them, listen, you have made it able for these people that are doing all this commerce to come into my house and be protected as animals are protected in a den. And I hate that. See, Jesus will not have this gross violation of Scripture and misuse of Scripture said in regard to the temple, he will not let this go because he says again in verse number 17, but don't turn there, uh, you have made it a robber's den. Now, where does what's happening here is this, that the prophet Jeremiah, turn, take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7. The prophet Jeremiah declared what God will do to his house if it became a den of robbers. What, what, what would he do with it? He'll, he'll destroy it. He will destroy it like he destroyed Sheol, or excuse me, Shiloh. Uh, it says in Jeremiah 7, look at verse number 9. It says, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifice to the bell, and walk after other gods that you have not known? And then notice verse 10. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered that you may do all these things, these abominations. And then notice at verse 11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. And then move down to verse 14. It says, therefore, I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, 
to the place which I gave you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. What did he do to Shiloh? Well, verse number 15 says, I will cast you out of my sight as I have cast out all your brothers, all the offspring of Ephraim. See, in other words, God is saying to them, listen, if this happens to my house, this is what I will do. Well, this is what's happening to his house. So what, what do you expect him to do? You do expect him to do exactly what Scripture said. And that's what Jesus is doing in the temple. He's clearing out the house, and he's casting people out of his sight because they have grossly manipulated what the temple ought to be. So see, God's temple should have been a place which exemplified the riches of God's grace and mercy to those who were coming to worship and pray. All the nations were coming to worship and pray. Instead, it became a place of commerce and business distorting for the visiting Gentiles the nature of true religion and worship. So Jesus clears the temple because the nation of Israel should have been bringing other nations to God. Instead, they were driving them away from God. Of course, the Gospel of Matthew picks this up, and it says this in Matthew 23, 13, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. See, this is not only a condemnation of false, barren and uh, worship and religion, but it is a prophecy of the temple destruction. In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and the sacrificial system was destroyed. Ever since then, there has been no sacrificial system for Israel, and the reason why there has not been any sacrificial system for Israel is because Jesus became the last and ultimate sacrifice. Once Jesus was sacrificed, there was no need for a priesthood. There was no need for a prophet. There was no need for someone to die in the place of others once he did that. So the Word of God tells us that even when his disciples were around him and seeing all these things take place, it tells us in Matthew 24, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, you, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately and asking him, tell us, when will these things be? And when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because they knew if the temple was destroyed, that's it. That's it. Israel's done. And so this becomes the theme here in our text that Jesus more pointedly said in the Gospel of John, listen, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, he baffled everybody when he said that. The Jews therefore said to him, you took 
it took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has spoken. So in other words, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his own body, that once he sacrificed himself and fulfilled all the types and shadows of all the sacrificial systems, uh, system in the Old Testament, then for he became the priest, he became the sacrifice, he became the prophet, and he became the king in just this one act, and he became the temple. So when we worship, we worship the Lord Jesus Christ because his very body is the temple in which we worship God, that we have access to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. Now, in all that, let's go back to the Gospel of Mark and just conclude the way Jesus did. In in Mark chapter 11, notice verse number 18. Because here's the response of the... Israel's leadership, they would have to respond to this. They could not not respond. So when Jesus did and, and, and said in the temple all these things, it infuriated the religious leadership of Israel. They heard, but they came to the opposite conclusion, although it was an inevitable conclusion. In other words, spiritual blindness and spiritual barrenness is seen in their response to Jesus. Notice in verse 18, it says this, Mark eleven eighteen. the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. So it's time to come up, in other words, with a plan and a method to actually destroy Jesus. Why? Well, because this barren leadership of Israel was afraid that if Jesus continues to teach, then the people will turn away from all other authorities, including them, and follow Jesus alone. That's what will happen. So we have to be aware, be aware of ourselves. We have to be, let's be aware of giving God a mere formal service while our hearts are full of the world. Spiritual barrenness can be noticed when there is no longer faithful adherence to Scripture, when there is no increasing faith in God, when the very gathering of believers have been manipulated and corrupted by other things beside what God wants, the simple worship of him. And when there's no heart in worship, no sincere prayer, no fruit of forgiveness, see, he wants us to avoid these withered roots which bear no fruit in in the trappings of of formal religion uh, and spiritual barrenness are things that he wants us to hedge against. And how do we do that? How do we hedge against the very fact that there uh, is a possibility of spiritual uh, fruitlessness and 
against religious formality. Well, I believe the Lord gives his disciples a challenge because they were listening. And he, the challenge is found in verse number 2 and verse number 22 and 23 of, of Mark 11. And here's the Lord's challenge. The Lord's challenge is this. The first thing, there's actually there's three things he tells them. Number one, bear the necessary, necessary characteristic of faith. Look what he says in verse 22. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Sounds simple, but it's very true to what has been going on because they did not have faith in God. And then verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. See, in other words, Jesus is using hyperbole here, all right? And he is saying that real faith is absent of doubt and fear. Real faith knows the disciples' source of all power, which is God himself. And so the disciples' inner attitude should always be first trust. Trust in what God is doing, even though you may not understand everything he's doing at the moment. Trust him because of his character. And then secondly, in verse 24, bear the necessity, the necessary characteristic of prayer. It says this, therefore, verse 24, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they will be granted to you. Now, this is not just a blanket expression to pray for anything you want and God will give it to you. No, this is a prayer of the disciples' action of faith. In other words, that how do you know you have faith is you pray to God, all right? You pray, that means you pray according to God's will. You pray in harmony with God's purposes. That's what real prayer is anyway, right? Real prayer is praying in harmony with what God had already written in Scripture. It's not just praying for any old thing. It's praying for especially things that are, are just according to your passions and desires. This is praying for God's revealed will found in the Word of God, praying for what God's already doing. All right, so it's God's will for you to pray for your own spiritual growth. It's God's will for you to pray for your own growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's God's will for you to pray that you would be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's God's will for you to be sanctified by the word of God and sanctified in your relationship. See, it's God's will that you do that. And how do you do that? How do you show your faith? By prayer. But he, he says one other thing to them in verse number 25 and 26, to bear the necessary characteristic of forgiveness. All right, now, why is that? You know why? Because the, the nation of Israel, the leadership did not forgive people. They didn't even include the other nations. And they weren't forgiving at all. They were very exclusive. And, of course, when spiritual barrenness gets in and fruitlessness gets in and formal worship gets in, then it all, all the scripture goes south. It's just sidelined. And so... What does he say in verse 25? Wherefore, whenever you stand praying, forgive, 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in, who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, if you notice verse 26 in brackets, that means it's not in the early manuscripts. But it's all, it is recorded in the other Gospels. But it's all said, really, in verse number 25. So, so in other words, the disciples' attitude in prayer is to have a forgiving attitude. Why is that? Because God has a forgiving attitude towards his people who worship him in spirit and in truth. So forgiving power cannot flow into our lives if we refuse to forgive others. See, you ought to forgive, you and I ought to forgive because God's forgiven me and you, right? That's, that's the bottom line. Why, do you, why should you forgive anybody who sinned against you? Because God's forgiven you, if you're a believer, right? And God forgives you if you bring your confession to him. He forgives you of all your sin and unrighteousness. So see, these things are the things that the Lord gives his disciples to hedge against the two warnings of spiritual fruitlessness and religious formality. If you want to grow in the Lord... Grow in faith, in your faith in God. Continue in prayer, especially prayer that is in harmony with God's will. And then practice forgiveness towards others. Do these things, and you will hedge against those other things. Where does some of this show up today? I think it shows up when you don't recognize that your heart has grown cold, when you don't admit it. Right? You have to admit it. Sometimes you, you, we do grow cold for whatever reasons, right? Sometimes continuing in a, or going on in a sin makes us numb, cold. It could be that we have bitterness in our heart towards somebody which has made us stop growing. We're not forgiving. We're not praying. We're not doing the very things he just says here. And so there, what, what would we expect? Anything less than feeling like we're distant from God? And that we do, we're not close to God anymore? If these things aren't evident in our life all the time? It could show up, though, also in not preparing our heart for worship. We, we come to church, but what do we come to church with? All kinds of baggage. We drag the whole week, the whole month, the whole year into, into church, into when we meet together for worship. Instead of getting those things taken care of on a Saturday or during the week, so when you come to the, uh, the gathering of believers, we're ready to worship. We're not have fallen asleep. We're not thinking about, you know, going somewhere after church. We're not. Do you think that pleases the Lord? When we come like that, we, that doesn't please the Lord at all whatsoever. The Lord hates those kind of things. He doesn't want those kind of things in our life. And believe me, we, don't get me wrong, we have plenty of baggage that happens during the week. We all do, right? I mean, like, you know, you're dysfunctional, I'm dysfunctional, so what's the problem, right? We, we all have problems. We, have, we all have issues. But we have to learn what to do with those issues. We can't be dragging them in where it clouds our, our mind to worship God, to be engaged in it. So our minds grow, so our souls grow, so we become strong in the Lord. In these days, we need strong believers. So it could show up when we don't prepare ourselves for worshiping God. 
It could show up also for just becoming lackadaisical in our in spiritual things. We take for granted that we have the Word of God on our shelf. We take for granted that we can actually get in our car and drive to church and, and worship uh, the Lord and hear the Word of God. We take for granted of those things. We, we should never, ever take for granted of those things. And if there's any kind of lackadaisical attitude about spiritual things, it needs to be addressed and repented of. For your own spiritual health and safety, it needs to be. And for what reason? Because the Lord hates that kind of stuff. He, he hates when you just go through the motions. He hates when your heart is not engaged. He hates when you're faking it. He hates that. So, so, so in other words, this passage of Scripture is very, very where the rubber meets the road, right? We're coming to the Lord's table this morning. For what reason? To examine ourselves to see how we're doing, right? If we have any wrong, anybody, anything wrong with other people, we have bitterness in our heart, an unforgiving spirit, we need to get that right, right? We should get that right before we come, so we can come. We cannot let these things fester in our heart and become cancerous. So th- those are the things that the Lord wants us to be w- well aware of, all his disciples to be well aware of. Now, this is all happening before the cross. He's telling his disciples and getting them ready for not only the cross, but afterwards. That these are going to be realities in your life that you have to deal with. The Lord's not going to rescue us from all trouble. He's not going to rescue us from all circumstances. He's not going to do that. He's going to teach us in those circumstances. And so we have to have the biblical principles and we have to have the relationship with God that is growing and bearing fruit and is not spiritually barren, and is not just formality, but is a real relationship. And you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, and if no one else believes it and follows you, you're still going to do it, right? See, that's the kind of people we need today. We always needed those kind of people. We're we're always going to need those kind of people. But I sense and I see that's not always the case with Christians today. There's too much. We're too comfortable. There's many things that contribute to us falling into these traps. I think all the upbeat Christianity, you know what? Christianity is not always upbeat, all right? The songs are not always joyful, right? There's much sorrow and suffering in the Christian life. All right, so we can't just say, you know, we've always got to be positive. We've always got to be upbeat. we always got to be, no. We, but I'll say this, that we can always be joyful in the Lord and peaceful in the Lord even if things around us don't look that way because the Lord's working in our heart with a peace that can't be taken away, with a joy that can't be taken away. All right, so that's there. That's there. So you can live your Christian life with joy and peace and everything around you can look like it's a mess. But that's all right, right? You be concerned about your own heart. And you take care of that, and the Lord takes care of all the rest. So grow in faith in God. Continue in prayer, especially prayer that is in harmony with God's will, and then practice forgiveness towards each other. These will help you 
hedge against the two warnings of spiritual fruitlessness and religious formality. Let's pray, and then I'll just mention the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again. Lord, your word is so exacting. It is like a scalpel, Lord. It does cut to the thoughts and intents of our heart. And Lord, because it does that, and because it exposes us for who we are, Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, to come to you this morning and just identify some of those things that are in our own life. And I pray that we would repent of them. We would put them to death. We would put on righteousness. And we would go on to live and serve you, to follow you all the days of our life. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I pray that you would prepare our hearts even for this event in which you have commanded in Scripture. For we know, Lord, the Lord's table is a sign of those continuing to belong to God's people. When we come faithfully with understanding, with the reason why we come, then, Lord, we know that we are people that are ready to receive the elements of the bread that represents your body and the cup that represents the blood that you shed on the cross of Calvary to wash away all our sin. So I pray, Lord, today would be a day that we examine ourselves properly and we make ourselves ready to take partake of the Lord's table. And I ask this in your name. Amen.